You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Hey, Foothills Church, my name is John Aiken, and I'm excited to be able to finish our series in the book of Galatians called Simply Jesus today. So we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, the last chapter, so turn there and get, get ready to read those verses. But let me just tell you, when I was a pastor in Nashville, I would have to drive to Louisville from time to time because I would teach at Southern Seminary. And I would usually take back roads uh, through Tennessee and then Kentucky to get to I-65 before I would head up to Louisville. And every time I would take those back roads in this, this one small town, I don't remember if it was in Tennessee or in Kentucky, but it was right there on the border, I would always see this church that had a church sign that would make me kind of smile and, and almost laugh. It gave the name of the church and then underneath the name of the church, it said a spirit-filled church. And I just thought that was kind of funny, like every other church in town is a spirit-less church, but this is the spirit-filled church. And if you want to go to a church where the spirit's at, then you go to this church. And what do they, what do they mean by that? I, I, can, I can come up with some ideas of what they mean by that. When people talk about a spirit-filled church, they're talking about potentially uh, speaking in tongues happens there or some charismatic experiences or signs and wonders, or there's this really exuberant worship. That's what people usually mean when they talk about being a spirit-filled church. But what does the Bible mean when it talks about being spirit-filled or talking about a church being spirit-filled? Here at the end of Galatians, Paul has, has wrapped up, Pastor Trent talked about this last week, with the fruit of the Spirit and then talking about walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit. And, and honestly, we read the Bible a little bit differently than the original audience would have read it. They didn't have chapter and verse divisions. Paul wrote this letter as one long argument, sent the whole thing, and the church at Galatia would have read the entire thing in one sitting. And it's one argument that Paul is making throughout the book where he's talking about who is truly part of the people of God, who has really received the Spirit, who has really received the promises of God. That's the argument that Paul is making throughout the book because as we've talked about, there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church and they said, yeah, Jesus is great, believe in Jesus, but you need to add to Jesus obeying the Old Testament law and obeying the Old Testament rituals. And so because they were teaching that, because some people were being led astray by it, it created division, it created separation in the church. And so Paul comes in and he makes this argument about who is truly the people of God? And he makes the exact same argument that the apostles were making in the book of Acts. You go back to the book of Acts and you see what the apostles are preaching. They're looking at the Jewish people. They're looking at the nation of Israel and they're saying, listen, you've been waiting all these hundreds of years for the end time promises of God to come true. You've been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. You've been waiting for the graves to open. You've been waiting for the spirit to be poured out on all flesh, not just kings, not just priests and prophets, but on everybody in the nation of Israel. You've been waiting for those promises and guess what? Look around, they've happened. The Messiah has come. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. You betrayed him, you handed him over to the Romans and allowed him to be executed. God raised him from the dead. The graves have opened, one man walked out. It wasn't you, it was Jesus of Nazareth. And then he poured out his spirit on all of his followers, which means you're not really part of the people of God anymore. The people of God is not defined by DNA or by external ritual. The, the people of God is defined by 
have you simply believed in Jesus and then received the promised spirit? That's what the, the promises were pointing to, that God's people, the true Israel, are now those who have simply believed in Jesus and received the promised spirit. And what does the spirit produce in the people who follow Jesus? He produces a community that loves each other and takes care of one another. They, they, it's a community that's the kingdom on earth as the kingdom is in heaven. And that's what it means to be a Holy Spirit-filled church. That's what he's walking through here at the end of the book of Galatians, that to walk by the Spirit and to be a Spirit-filled church means you care for and you take care of one another. And it's really surprising to me, as I've been in ministry for a couple decades now, that so many Christians that I meet who think that they're Spirit-filled, who claim to be Spirit-filled, bounce from church to church to church never really being committed to a local congregation, never being really committed to a local body of believers. They, they think that they're better than those people. They think that those people don't listen to them the way that they should. And so they bounce from church to church to church. But here's the bottom line. Whatever you think it means to be spirit-filled, the Bible says that one of the main things that is a characteristic of a church that is filled with the spirit is that you're committed to one another and you're taking care of one another. I don't care if you have an hour-long quiet time every day. I don't care if you raise your hands really high and sing really loud in worship. If you're not committed to a local body of believers that you are caring for and they are caring for you, then you are not walking by the Spirit because a Spirit-filled church cares for each other and provides for each other. That's what Paul tells us here at the end of Galatians. First thing we see is a Spirit-filled church cares for each other. Look what the Bible says here, and we'll read verses one through five. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Paul ends chapter five. And again, there wouldn't have been a, a chapter and verse division there by saying walk by the spirit. And then he shows what it means to walk by the spirit is that you're not divided the way that you are now, but you are a family who cares for each other and holds each other accountable. That's why he calls them brothers. You are family in Christ. And so as family, you should take care of each other and keep each other accountable. And so he says, look, if, a, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bottom line is, if, if we have a pet in our house and it gets out of the house and it gets lost and we don't know where that pet is, we go after it, right? Put up signs in the neighborhood. We knock on doors. We drive around trying to find our pet. We should do the exact same thing the Bible's telling us here with wayward members. We should go after them. If you know somebody is struggling and hurting, I don't know if it's a, an affair or maybe some addiction or some family challenge or maybe they're, they're, they're forsaking the assembly and not being part of the church like they were before. If you know that, then if you're walking by the Spirit, you should restore them gently. Now, in this day and age, we, we don't want to get involved in those kinds of things. We sometimes will even try to quote Scripture and say, you know, something like, judge not lest you be judged. I remember one time a a pastor said, every pothead knows two verses of scripture by heart. 
Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. And Genesis 1, God gave us every plant of the field for our good. And so every pothead knows those two verses. And we say, hey, listen, I can't go around trying to remove the speck in my brother's eye when I've got a plank in my own eye. I can't, I can't judge them. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, remove the plank from your eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck of dust from your brother's eye. That's what Paul says here in Galatians 6. If you are spiritual, you're not, you're not self-righteous, you're not haughty, you're not trying to gain anything out of it other than their good. If you're spiritual, you've removed the, the plank from your eye, then you should restore your brother gently. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. His kindness, his grace to us leads us to repentance and changes our life. And the same thing is true in terms of our relationships with one another. Our kind pursuit and efforts to restore a fallen brother or sister is what can bring about life change. I've seen this recently. My, uh, our middle daughter, Emma Grace, got a hamster for her birthday. And then she's got a second hamster since. And when she got the hamster, it was kind of just like a mean little sucker. It would, it would bite people. It would always try to hide and everyone would come out and play. Anytime somebody held it, it would nibble on them or bite them. It just wasn't real nice. It wasn't real friendly. And so we didn't know what to do. We were thinking, maybe, you know, maybe we should give it back to the lady. It's not happy here, whatever. But Emma Grace just kept loving that hamster and loving that hamster and loving that hamster. And now she can carry it around in her pocket and it falls asleep. It, it is completely kind. It has been completely changed. Why? Because she loved the hamster and she refused to give up on the hamster. And that's what Paul's telling us here is that with our brothers and sisters, if they're hurting, if they're struggling, we go after them. We fight for them. We do what it takes to, to bring their life back to the Lord. We are responsible for getting each other to glory. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon, pastor in England. He's, he's talking about the great book, The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. He's talking about our responsibility to get each other to heaven, to paradise. This is what he says. Listen to this quote. I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that champion, but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. And I have with me at the present time, dear old father, honest, I'm glad he is still alive and active. There is Christiana and there are her children. It is my business as best I can to kill dragons and to cut off giants' heads and to lead on the timid and the trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have heartache for them, but by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many have I had to part with there. I have stood on the brink and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream. And I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. We are called to speak up and to, to save somebody's life. You can literally save somebody's life if you will just speak up when you see them walking away. I got this email a couple of years ago from a guy that I had to confront who was, who was kind of in a, in a really difficult spot and I was trying to restore him gently and I, I may not have gone about it as gently as I should have. And when I, when I confronted him, he just walked out on me and refused to talk to me. And then a couple of years later, he sent this email to me. Let me just read it to you. He said, I, he said, I realize it's been a while since I talked to you, but I want to again thank you for something you did for me several years ago. I don't know if you remember, but you confronted me about some sin and I walked out on you. 
Thank you so much for being strong in that moment. And so I texted him back. Yes, I remember that. Good to hear from you, brother. I'm grateful for what God has done in your life. Praise God for his goodness. He said, I'm involved in conversations with a person who used to attend our church that has done some pretty bad things. And I have been able to repeatedly share God's love with him as well as his imminent danger should he not repent. I said, that is awesome. Thank you for sharing this note. It encourages me to continue to be direct with him. And this is what he said. I honestly believe that had you not gotten into my business then and confronted me, I would be in a different place in my life. You have my utmost respect for being strong in the faith and confronting me. My own experience from this tells me that what you did can be both fantastically awesome and heartbreaking in the same day. I'm praying for you. Listen, if we speak up, if we'll say something, it may not change immediately, but you can rescue somebody's life. You can see their life change. And you never know when your life might be in need and you need somebody to care about you enough to say, grab you by the face and say, what are you doing? You need to turn around. We need these kinds of relationships in our life. That's why we need to be in the small groups. Honestly, every person who's part of Foothills Church should be in a small group where you know people and are known by people and are invested in one another's lives. Now, he gives a warning here, there in verse, the end of verse one, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. He's warning him, listen, you gotta take watch of yourself. If you confront somebody in sin, there may be the temptation that you'll join in that sin with them. I think more he's talking about the temptation towards self-righteousness, of arrogance, of acting like you could never do this, you could never be in the situation that they are in. You need to go with humility. The only way that you're gonna be able to really reach somebody is if you go with humility of, of thinking, I'm a sinner too, and I'd want somebody to speak up to me. And so I'm just speaking up to you the way I want you to speak up to me because I recognize I could be in your place today, you know, to the next day or the next year or the next decade. I could be there and I need somebody to love me enough to say something to me. And so he says, keep watch over yourself. Don't be tempted towards self-righteousness. You might be in need tomorrow. And here's the bottom line. He says there in verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we're called to do as a church family. We're to, we, we care for each other by bearing one another's burdens. You get a chance to help each other out. If there's a financial crisis, just like right now, there's so many people hurting. The church is there to help with that financial crisis. If there's a family crisis, you're there to pray and to walk through that with them. If there's a health crisis, it's not just pastors who visit hospitals and, and take care of sick people. You call and you visit and you send something to, to encourage them. If there's some kind of, uh, you know, uh, family issue that's going on with a, with a wayward child, you help bear that burden and you pray for that, uh, that child. You help those mom, that mom and dad to walk through that situation. Whatever burdens come up in the congregation, we are called to do the lifting so that somebody doesn't have to do the lifting by themselves. So don't be too proud to share your burdens with other people. And don't be too proud to help carry somebody else's burden. That's what we're called to in taking care of each other. He says, if you do this, then you're fulfilling the law of Christ. And this is what the law of Christ is. John chapter, three, uh, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you wanna know that you are a follower of Jesus, if you wanna know that you are being led and filled by the Spirit, the number one marker is, do you love the people of God? 
And do you care for the people of God? That's how you tell if you're really spiritual. That's how you fulfill the command of Jesus is you love each other. We love each other at Foothills Church the way that Jesus has loved us. But there's a tension there because he says you're to bear each other's burdens. But then verse five, each will have to bear his own load and that you will give an answer for your life before God. You don't get to do this comparison game, he says there. You don't get to compare yourself to your neighbor and say, well, I'm a better husband than John. I'm a better wife than Sally. I'm a, I'm a better Christian than Bill. I, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I do better than them. He says, no, you're going to have to answer to God for your own actions. And so there's this tension there of, yes, bear one another's burdens, but also you're going to have to stand on your own before God. And so you need to recognize that, that tension and, and really try to live a life of balance. Not everything in your life is a crisis that somebody else needs to share. There's things that you can carry on your own. And there are things that are too heavy for you to carry on your own that you need help with. And so health, spiritual health, is knowing the balance between the two because neither extreme is healthy. Never being able to bear your own burden, that's not, that's not healthy. And always trying to bear your own burden, that's not healthy. And so we need a church family that can help us with the things that, that we may not be able to do completely on our own. So a spirit-filled church cares for each other. Secondly, a spirit-filled church provides for each other. Let's look what the Bible says there in verse six. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The second thing that Paul says is a Spirit-filled church provides for each other. He says there in verse 6, that the church should take care of financially the one who preaches the gospel to them. And it seems like Paul's having to give this instruction because the Galatian church has stopped supporting the people that are preaching the gospel to them. And his, his concern isn't really financial. It, he isn't trying to enrich the people who are preaching and teaching. He's not trying to enrich himself. His concern is that the gospel can advance without hindrance that the, the word of God can go out and lives can be changed and, and the pastors and the leaders aren't having to constantly worry about finances and provision. You're providing for them so that they can advance the gospel. It's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter five. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter five, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. He says, do this so that you're not muzzling him, so that you're not hindering the advance of the gospel. And so we are called to be generous in giving to support the ministry of the church so that the gospel can be proclaimed. And so he uses here that sowing and reaping imagery that we hear throughout the Bible Yes, it can be applied broadly is if you sow to the flesh by, by you know, sowing to lust, you're gonna reap consequences for that. If you sow to the flesh by nursing and holding a grudge, you're gonna reap consequences that are destructive as a result of that. If you sow to the spirit, you're gonna receive eternal life. Yes, those things are true. But here he's specifically applying this to the financial support of 
the church. That's what he's doing. If the church sows to the Holy Spirit by giving to support the ministry of the church, in due course, there will be an eternal harvest. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. And if you can go back 11, 12 years ago, when the people who started Foothills Church and were giving generously and giving sacrificially and to say, hey, now 11 plus years later, look at the hundreds of lives that have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was it worth it to give up those things and to sacrifice those things? They would say, absolutely. And that's what Paul is talking about. If you sow to the spirit by giving financially and generously to the mission of the church, you will see eternity changed for people. But if you sow to the flesh by spending your money on worldly pleasures, all that's going to result from that is decay. That stuff gets old, it gets worn out. Jesus says uh, rust and moth destroy it. But if you sow to the spirit, there's something that you can never take away from somebody else. And that's the lives that are being changed by the gospel. And so we find money for what we value. What is it that, that we value? Do we value the ministry of this church and the, the lives that are being changed by the gospel witness of this church? And so let me just say this. I know that's a very difficult time. I know that there's people who have lost jobs and we are praying for you and here to help and support you. But I wanna say, I know there's many of you who have continued to be sacrificial and generous in your giving. And I just wanna say, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that even in difficult times because our church is continuing to meet needs and continuing to do mission and seeing lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so your efforts are not in vain. If you have the opportunity, if you have the means, please continue to give to support the ministry and mission of the church. And then he concludes there by saying, look, do your best as you have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do your best to take care of everyone, okay? Unemployment skyrocketing, 140 million orphans in the world, okay? 60 million refugees. There's needs all around us. And yes, as you have opportunity, give and support and try to meet those needs and provide for those needs. But he says, Give priority in your charitable giving to your local church. He says, give especially to those who are of the household of faith. Your local church should be the first place that you give your charitable giving. Yes, as you have means, do all kinds of other stuff. Do as much as you can, but give the priority to your local church because Meeting needs and providing for each other is the mark of the, the kind of kingdom that Jesus wants to create. It's the kind of kingdom that God wanted to bring on earth. All the way back in Deuteronomy in the law, when he's talking about what he wants Israel to be, he says in Deuteronomy 15, four, there's not to be any poor among you. And then when Jesus gives the spirit and the first church is formed in Jerusalem, Acts 4.34 tells us there was not a needy person among them. And so we can bring God's kingdom as it is in heaven to earth by the way that we provide for each other. And then Paul ends the book with the exact same argument we've been talking about the entire time. It's simply Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ is enough to forgive you of your sins, to save your life, to incorporate you into the family of God, to be part of the people of God. And Paul ends here by saying, we should value transformation, a new creation, a new life over external ritual, circumcision. You should value transformation, spiritual transformation over external 
rituals. That's what God really values. And so he says, the new creation has come. We live as the kingdom community on earth as it is in heaven. And imagine what could happen if this were our testimony in the world, that we are a spirit-filled church who takes care of each other and provides for each other. That's exactly what the world said about the early church. Here's a quote from a man named Aristides who's talking to the king about what the early Christians were like. Let me close with this. This is what he says. Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking have found truth, for they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him, they receive those commandments which they have engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. They refuse to worship strange gods. They go in their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not unbegrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear of any of their number who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. If they find poverty in their midst, and they do not have spare food. They fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe these commandments of their Messiah living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour, they praise and thank God for his goodness to them and for their food and drink, they offer thanksgiving. Such, O King, is the commandment given to the Christians and such is their conduct. This spirit-filled community changed the world once. And I believe that through our church, he can do it again if we will walk in step with the Spirit and care for each other and provide for each other and love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray for us and then challenge you to respond to this message. Let's pray. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ right now for everybody who's watching this service. I pray if there's anyone who's watching who's not a believer in Jesus, that they would put their faith and trust in him today and have their life changed from the inside out, not by what they do on the outside, but from the inside out, they'd be changed by Jesus. And Father, I pray for those who are listening, who are believers, that we in the power of your spirit would love and care for one another the way that Jesus has cared for us so that Everybody knows we're your disciples and we're your followers. And they see the truth of the gospel in the way that we interact with one another. Father, we pray that that testimony, that witness would be a light to the world and it would be changing in our culture and our city. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.